This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I want to welcome you all to this last public lecture from the Stein Institute for 2020. I'm going to talk on making 2021 the year of wisdom. First of all, I want to acknowledge and thank my colleagues, staff, and trainees who have been instrumental in the work that I will be presenting today. Especially want to acknowledge the five people uh, at the bottom, uh, Ellen Lee, Michael Thomas, Barton Palmer, Colin Depp, and Tanya Wynn. 2020 has been called the worst year in our memory by the Time magazine. And many of us will agree with that. It was a year of living dangerously, mainly because of COVID-19. COVID had already killed 300,000 Americans and infected a total of 16 million Americans to date. It has also been a year of increasing loneliness and stress because of social distancing that was necessary for stemming the spread of the virus. Fortunately, the year is almost over, and even more importantly, the vaccines are here. In the next few months, hopefully, we all will be vaccinated. And 2021 would be a very different type of year. This is a year we can attempt our best to live wisely. I'm going to begin my talk with discussing modern behavioral pandemics. Next, I will discuss what is wisdom. Then, talk about wisdom and aging. And finally, what are the ways in which we can enhance wisdom? When we talk about pandemics, which means global epidemics, we typically think about Infections, infections caused by bacteria or viruses. And these have been around since ancient times. Millions of people have been killed in pandemics of plague, cholera, smallpox, influenza. COVID-19, of course, is a phenomenon of 2019-2020. But what people don't realize is that in the modern times, we are facing a very different kind of pandemic. This is a behavioral pandemic. It includes things like loneliness, suicidality, opioid crisis, and stress. These things are taking a major toll on our health, life, and longevity. Loneliness has been called a grand challenge for the society. 
it is also called a silent killer it increases the odds of mortality by 30% it is as dangerous to health as smoking and obesity in the us according to the us agency for healthcare research and quality 162000 deaths per year are attributable to loneliness and mind you here i'm talking about the last couple of decades not just last year 162000 deaths that is more than the number of deaths secondary to lung cancer or stroke and it's not only a health issue it's also a business issue in the uk a new minister of loneliness was appointed by then prime minister theresa may in 2018 because the businesses were concerned that they were losing billions of pounds because of loneliness among workers loneliness underlies suicides as well as opioid abuse in the us suicide rates have increased by 33% in just the last two decades from 1999 through 2017 the increase in both men and women and relatively larger increase actually has occurred in younger people teenagers people in the 20s and early 30s the mortality from opioid use has increased even more substantially in 1999 8000 americans died from opioid related death today that number exceeds 50000 so just imagine what a serious pandemic loneliness suicide and opioid abuse has been as a result the average lifespan in the us declined the average lifespan in the us and actually the rest of the world too has been increasing progressively since the mid 1950s that is after the world war ended and things stabilized the lifespan has been growing until 2015 then two years in a row it dropped and it didn't drop because of some new cancers or sudden increase in heart disease or even new infections again mind you covid is a 20 20 phenomena i am talking about years through 2018 so that is because of the loneliness related illnesses both mental and physical loneliness is a personality trait a large study of genetic basis of loneliness was done in uk it included about half a million people and the scientists did what is called gwas genome wide analysis study they found that loneliness is a modestly heritable trait about 50% of loneliness is inherited that means 50% is determined by environment and behavior and the genetic basis is highly polygenic the genes that are associated with loneliness also are associated with increased risk of cardiovascular diseases heart disease hypertension metabolic diseases 
like diabetes, obesity, and psychiatric disorders like major depression, generalized anxiety disorder, Alzheimer's disease, and other dementia. All of these are potentially fatal diseases. Julian Holt Lundstad, a brilliant epidemiologist at BYU, Brigham Young University, did a meta-analysis of various risk factors for mortality. And this is what is shown in this slide. The yellow bars represent social connections and other social determinants of health, like social support. The blue bars show the traditional risk factors for mortality. Risk factors like smoking, sedentary behavior, obesity, alcohol. So what you see here is that the yellow bars are longer than the blue bars. That means the social determinants of health contribute more to longevity and mortality than the traditional risk factor, such as smoking and obesity. The good news in the field of loneliness is that we have consistently found in our recent study that loneliness is inversely associated with wisdom. This study included more than 2,800 people. These are people across adult lifespan, and this was the U.S. population. We did this study using Amazon-based Mechanical Turk or MTurk. What you see on the horizontal axis is a score on wisdom scale, and on the vertical axis is a score on loneliness scale. There's a strong inverse association with a correlation of negative 0.51. We have replicated this finding in three other studies, and the correlation varies from negative 0.5 to negative 0.75. That's very high correlation. I will come back to this point shortly, but before doing that, I want to talk about what is wisdom. Because wisdom seems to be good news as far as loneliness pandemic is concerned. Wisdom is an ancient concept. Most religions and philosophies include wisdom. Sophia is the Greek personification, Greek goddess of wisdom. People will notice that there are more goddesses of wisdom in different religions than there are gods of wisdom. So it looks like even in heaven, women do better than men on wisdom. And I will come back to that with our own data a little later. Although wisdom has been around for a long time in philosophies and religions, it was not studied scientifically until very recently. The first empirical study on wisdom was done at Max Planck Institute in Berlin by Paul Baltis. Immediately following suit was other research done at University of Southern California in Los Angeles by Vivian Clayton. They are the true pioneers in this area of wisdom. The number of publications on wisdom has been growing since then. In the last decade, 2010 to 2019, 2,000 papers were published in peer-reviewed journals. You can see them on PubMed. And these are the papers that had wisdom in their title 
or was one of the keywords for this paper. So the literature is growing. We started research on wisdom about 15 or so years ago. And when you start working on a project, the first question you have to answer is, how do you define it? How do you define the construct of wisdom? What we wanted to do was find out how wisdom has been defined in the literature. And the literature on wisdom, of course, goes to the ancient times with scriptures. For instance, there are number of books of wisdom in the Bible. The best known among them is the book of Job. And there have been scientific articles written on that. My colleague and I, we did a mixed methods, qualitative, quantitative study on wisdom in an Indian scripture called Gita. And it helped us determine the main components of wisdom in the Gita. Next, we wanted to see how wisdom was defined in the modern empirical literature. As I said, the modern research started around mid-1970s. We found about 25 papers that had attempted to define wisdom. Wisdom is a personality trait, but it has different components. So what we wanted to find out was what are the components of wisdom that are included in these various definitions. And then we put together a panel of international experts on wisdom. And we did a study using what is called Delphi or RAND panel method. So we used three approaches to find out components of wisdom. And we expected that probably we'll find quite different results from this. Surprisingly, Surprisingly, we found there were striking similarities in the conceptualization of wisdom. Going back to ancient scriptures, which were written thousands of years BCE to today, um, we found that similar components, not necessarily identical, there were some, there were a few differences, but by and large, the basic components of wisdom were similar across these approaches. Wisdom, as I said, is a multi-component personality trait and the components that are commonly included are empathy and compassion. They are pro-social behavior, things that we do for other people rather than selfishly for ourselves. Empathy means understanding and sharing somebody's emotion. Compassion means acting on those emotions and helping somebody else. Next is emotional regulation control over our emotions. So preventing them from ruling our decision making. Then comes self-reflection. Ability to look inwards, trying to understand ourselves and correct ourselves. Then comes accepting uncertainty and diversity of perspectives. A wise person knows that she or he can't know everybody and can't know everything. So there will be uncertainty. And the person may have strong values, but can accept the fact that other people may have different value systems, and that is okay. At the same time, we can't be sitting on the fence all the time. There is uncertainty and diversity, but we need to be decisive when decisiveness is essential. And finally, spirituality, which is different from religiosity. 
spirituality means feeling connected constantly connected with something or someone whether it is nature consciousness soul or god whatever you call that but there is that constant connectedness so these are the components of wisdom that we found were common to the scriptures to the modern western literature and to the modern experts in wisdom so the next task was to be able to measure wisdom wisdom is a personality trait and there are scales for measuring different personality traits typically the scales include a bunch of statements about your thinking feeling and behavior and you have to say whether you agree or disagree with those statements and to what extent so i worked with a colleague of mine michael thomas who is a psychologist and expert in skill development together we developed a skill that we call san diego wisdom scale or st wise there are total seven components of wisdom and we have four items for each of those components a total of 28 items and we showed that it has good to excellent psychometric properties the scale has already been translated into italian hebrew and russian couple of examples of the items it is important that i understand the reasons for my actions that shows self reflection ability to look inside second i another sentence is i have trouble thinking clearly when i am upset so this is opposite of emotional regulation that when i'm upset i'm so emotionally wrapped up that i can't think clearly so there are some items that are positively worded some that are negatively worded but this is a scale that is available you can log on to our website aging.ucsd.edu and look for wisdom scale you'll be able to take it yourself and find out what your score is on different components of wisdom as well as the total score people often ask whether wisdom is same as intelligence does it include social intelligence or emotional intelligence and the answer is wisdom does include each of those to some extent but it is not same as those concepts it is something much more than that general intelligence is measured by intelligence quotient iq usually you need some level of intelligence to be wise but beyond that there is no one to one relationship between intelligence and wisdom a very intelligent person a very smart person can be quite unwise there are intelligent people who are sad depressed sometimes they are antisocial they are very selfish narcissistic and hurt others they are not wise wisdom is not same as intelligence So one fact I mentioned was that similarity in the concept of wisdom from ancient scriptures to the modern world. What does it mean? To us, it meant that wisdom must be biologically based. Because if it is biologically based, it won't change dramatically. It would, of course, be affected by social cultural factors. So there will be some differences, but not major basic differences. so that's why we wanted to find out the neurobiology of wisdom 
So we began by reviewing the literature on neurobiology of wisdom. We didn't find any studies because the neurobiologists had not studied wisdom. So what we did was then look at neurobiology of individual components of wisdom, neurobiology of empathy, neurobiology of compassion, or their opposite, neurobiology of antisocial personality. And we found plenty of studies. Studies using brain imaging, genetics, neuropathology, and bunch of other things based on which we found that similar brain regions were involved in all of these components. And I will talk about that in the next slide. The brain has so many regions, but only a few regions seem to be involved in the various components of wisdom. The next question though then was that involved in components of wisdom, but what about wisdom overall? So what we did was we looked at what one may call experiments of nature. People whose personality and behavior change from wise to unwise following localized brain injury or with diseases which affected specific brain areas. One of the most famous cases in the neuroscience literature is Phineas Gage. He was a construction worker in Vermont in the mid 19th century. One day there was a big explosion and large iron rod went through his brain, came out of that, came out of his head. Uh, he survived, but his behavior changed radically. Previously, he was a nice man, kind, helpful. After this injury, he became very unwise. He lost all of the components of wisdom that I described on my slide. Empathy, compassion, self-reflection, emotional regulation, acceptance of uncertainty, and so on. Where was the damage? In specific areas of the brain. I'll show you in the next slide. There is also a disease called frontotemporal dementia. This is not like Alzheimer's because memory loss is not a major problem. And it occurs earlier than Alzheimer's in the 50s. Where is the damage? Specific areas of the brain. And what are those areas? These are the areas that are involved in neurobiology of wisdom. Prefrontal cortex and limbic striatum. Okay? Prefrontal cortex and specific parts of the dorsolateral, ventromedial, and anterior cingulate, also insula, and limbic striatum includes amygdala and ventral striatum. I don't want to go into technical details, and we'll be happy to discuss those in our question and answer session. But what I want to point out is that wisdom is biologically based. Of course, brain is a complex computer, and all of the parts interact. But these are the areas in which there is greater representation of traits related to wisdom. Next question, wisdom and aging. I'm a geriatric psychiatrist. And I always wondered about aging. What is the meaning of aging? Why do humans age when we lose everything with aging? The physical health declines, fertility declines. Does something improve with aging? So we looked at the literature and we didn't find any longitudinal study of wisdom. However, we found number of 
cross-sectional studies that compared older people with younger people. You know, we all know that younger people are better than older people in some ability, such as rapid action. They have a lot of psychomotor activity at a fast rate. They can learn new things quickly. That's why they do so well with technology. However, older adults are better than younger ones in some ability areas. Emotional regulation, positivity, that is favoring positive emotions and memory, empathy and compassion, self-reflection, decisions that require experience because experience comes with age. You'll recall that these are components of wisdom. And so number of studies have shown that older people in general do better in this ability than younger ones. Of course, there are exceptions. Not all old people are wiser. And there are some young people who are very wise. But by and large, this seems to hold true. Here at Stein Institute, we did a study of 1,500 plus San Diegans from age 20 to 100 plus. We wanted to find out both their physical health and mental health, what happened to it with Asia. Starting with physical health, by the way, I should tell you that the horizontal axis represents age, the vertical axis represents high functioning, people without disability. So what you find is that in 20s and 30s, most people do very well physically. They have the best physical health. And as we age, the physical health starts declining. So by the time people are in their 90s, most people are disabled. Not surprised, right? This is what we would expect. What about mental well-being? It goes exactly in the opposite direction. You know, 20s and 30s, that is the fountain of youth, right? Unfortunately, there are also a fountain of stress, depression, and anxiety. And if you think back at your 20s, you would agree that, you know, that was a period of considerable stress. A lot of competition, a lot of peer pressure. You have to make a lot of important decisions like continuing education, just taking a job, selecting a life partner. And you often feel that you didn't do well. There's a lot of pressure. The good news is that you start feeling better as you age. It is not that the stress goes down. Stress doesn't go down at any age. However, the way you react to stress improves. And that's where wisdom comes into play. Does wisdom of aging have an evolutionary purpose? In evolutionary biology, there is something called life history. Most vertebrates die soon after losing fertility. Yet humans have a very long post-reproductive lifespan, which is inconsistent with Darwin's hypothesis of survival of the fittest. So Darwin said that people or animals live only so long as they can contribute to the species survival by creating children. Because that is how the next generation will be there and the species will continue to survive. So when you lose your fertility, you are no longer useful to the species and you die. So that's the usual phenomenon in the natural world, wild world outside. That doesn't apply to humans though. We have age of menopause in women and age of andropause in men around 45 to 50. 
average lifespan today is 80. It will be 90 in a few decades. So if somebody lives to age 90, okay, that means they would have spent half of their lifespan without fertility and also with worsening physical health. It doesn't make sense. So why do we live that long when we are not contributing to the species survival? Unless something improves with aging. Is that wisdom? Does the wisdom of aging contribute to the species survival by helping the younger generations? Which brings us to what is called the grandmother hypothesis of wisdom. One of the most fascinating findings in research. The grandparent, especially grandma, when she helps her adult daughter raise children, what happens? When she helps the adult daughter raise children, this adult daughter lives longer, she is happier, and she produces more children than her mother did. More children than the grandma did. Although the grandma cannot reproduce anymore because she's after she's past menopause. She can help the younger generation by being happier, living longer, and being more fertile. This has been shown in dolphins, whales, certain birds, and in humans. And this is a research that has been published in the highest level journal in our field like nature and science. So it is not some just feel-good TV science, it is real hardcore science. My colleagues at UCSD, uh, including uh, Ajit Warki, have reported presence of what they call grandparent genes. These are variants of CD33 and APOE. If you have these variants, you not only live longer, but you have better functioning hearts and brains, which means that you'll be capable of grandparenting in later life. So the idea is that there are things in nature that allow or even encourage us to live longer so we can help the younger generation. And the effects go beyond fertility and longevity. They also affect socio-cultural behaviors. This was a very nice study done in UK. 1500 secondary school students from age 11 to 16. Some of these kids had grandparents and others didn't. They compared these two groups over a period of several years. And the researchers found that when grandparents were involved with these kids, these kids had fewer emotional problems. They are more pro-social behavior, empathy, compassion, and fewer adjustment difficulties compared to kids who didn't have grandparents in what? And this effect was even stronger among teenagers from single parent or step parent families. I think you'll realize, of course, that being raised by single parents or step parents is harder than being raised by natural two parents. So the point here is that grandparent involvement helps the most disadvantaged kids and it is not just biological grandparenting. Intergenerational activities benefit both generations. There is a terrific study called Experience Score that was done at Johns Hopkins some years ago. It was funded by the MacArthur Foundation. 
what the researchers did was they took some older adults who had retired from their jobs, people over 65, and they divided them into two groups. One group agreed to spend at least 15 hours a week for one full year in public elementary schools in their city. The other group didn't do that. Otherwise, the two groups were quite similar. After one year, the researchers found that, not surprisingly, the kids did great. These kids who were helped by these older adults, their grades went through the roof and they were very happy. But importantly, the older adults themselves improved. Their mental health improved, physical health improved, and biomarkers of stress and aging in blood and urine improved. And look at this. The volume of hippocampus on brain MRI in these older adults who helped the younger kids, the volume of hippocampus was larger than in the older adults who were not involved with the younger kid. Now, that doesn't mean that helping the younger kid increase the volume of hippocampus. No. What it means is that the decline in the volume of hippocampus that occurs with normal aging did not occur when these older adults spend considerable time helping the younger kid. So clearly it shows that intergenerational activities are helpful for both the generations. But how do they help older people? When I went to medical school, I was taught that the only thing that happens to the brain with aging is that it shrinks. It loses neurons, synapses, blood vessels, everything. So how can anything get better? Things can get better only if there is active aging. I cannot stress it too much. It is important. Active aging, that means being active physically, cognitively, mentally, socially. If you keep yourself active, then there will be greater recruitment and more efficient utilization of neuronal networks. Your brain will function better if you are active. Researchers, including Dr. Gage from Salk Institute here in San Diego, has done some remarkable work showing that the number of synapses and even the number of neurons in selected subcortical brain regions increase in older age if the animals or humans keep themselves active. So what about um, emotional regulation and more positivity that occurs with aging in people who are white? Brain imaging studies have shown that there's diminished amygdala activation. You remember I showed amygdala in the slide on neurobiology of brain? Amygdala is involved mainly with emotions. So the studies show that in older people, the amygdala is less activated with negative emotional stimuli or regret or fear compared to younger adults. The amygdala activation is same with positive stimuli, but with negative stimuli, stressful stimuli, depressing stimuli, the activation goes down with aging. And so that helps positivity. One caveat to keep in mind is that this neuroplasticity continues up to a certain age 
And after the age of 80, 85, or 90, it really becomes hard when the dementia、uh, kicks in. So, I talked about how wisdom can increase with aging, even biologically. What about wisdom and sex? We just completed a study, this is not published yet, so don't quote it, please. We used a three dimensional wisdom scale. There are three dimensions cognitive, reflective, and affective. Okay? And so here the pink bar show women, the blue bar show men. And higher the bar, that means higher the score. So what you see is the cognitive and reflective. There's some small difference between, the, between men and women, but it's not significant, not meaningful. However, there's a big difference on affective component. This affective component is also called compassionate component because it measures compassion. What we see here is that women score much higher than men. And that gets reflected in the total score, which is a total of these three dimensions, women score somewhat higher than men. So the bottom line is that women are more compassionate and somewhat wiser than men. And this is not a shocking finding. Number of other studies have shown that compassion is more in women than in men. Very important caveat to add here is that I'm talking about compassion toward other people. There's also something called self-compassion, compassion toward yourself. And women do not have greater compassion to themselves than men. Actually, men may have more self-compassion than women, but compassion toward other is almost always greater in women than in men. And I think it is really this is determined not just socioculturally, but biologically. Because this finding has been reported across cultures and across times. This has also been reported in primates, even in rodents, mice and rats, and in human infants. When a baby in a nursery starts crying, other babies also start crying. So there is that empathy and compassion. Of course, when we apply these constructs to rodents and human infants, we'll have to use them with a grain of salt. Nonetheless, the consistency of finding is really impressive. Functional MRI studies show that in social cognition, women engage more areas of the brain that are associated with emotions, whereas men engage more areas of the brain that are associated with cognitive control and utilitarian choices. So typically, men are more likely to make choices that are pragmatic or utilitarian. Whereas women are more likely to make choices that are compassionate and helpful to others. Oxytocin, an important hormone, also contributes to greater compassion toward others in women. So, final part of my talk is can we enhance wisdom? I mean, everything I said about wisdom is useful, but how, what effect does it have in our daily life? I'm happy to say that we just published a book called Wiser. The scientific roots of wisdom, compassion, and what makes us good. And we have summarized the research done by us and others, focusing on what are the things we can do in our daily life to become wiser at any age. The first thing is, of course, healthy lifestyle. Healthy lifestyle is critical. General strategies for healthy aging include diet, 
calorie restriction, of course, and superfood, food that are rich in antioxidants, like green leafy vegetables, fruit, foods that are rich in vitamin E, physical exercise. Numerous studies have shown the importance of physical exercise on brain health, social engagement. We saw how loneliness is damaging to brain. Social engagement is very beneficial. Sleep hygiene. Half of older people have sleep problem of one kind or another. And yet there are no good medicines for improving sleep on a regular basis. What we need is to practice sleep hygiene. Things like being relaxed when you go to bed. Don't read some complex, disturbing novel or don't watch TV news. Um, for most people, drinking coffee or alcohol is not conducive to good sleep. And having light exercise a little before you go to sleep can also be helpful. And finally, healthcare, therapeutic and preventive healthcare is of course critical to healthy aging of the brain. Physical and mental activities improve brain functioning. Physical exercise, of course, improves brain functioning, but even mental activities do something similar. Things like meditation and mindfulness have impact on the brain. One study showed that two-month mindfulness-based stress reduction reduced the expression of pro-inflammatory genes in circulating white blood cells. Other studies have shown that daily meditation for six months increased the activity of an enzyme called telomerase. This is an enzyme that determines how long a cell lives. Also studies have found meditation to increase white matter integrity in the brain. So the point here is that things like mindfulness and meditation, they not only make you feel good, but they have impact on the brain and the body. I showed you the slide earlier about the negative association between loneliness and compassion. Loneliness and compassion is the most important part of wisdom. So both wisdom and compassion, of course, go hand in hand. There are also other data we have that show the same thing. We just completed a study. This is not published yet, so please don't cite it. Um, this is a longitudinal study of 1260 people looking at compassion, wisdom, and loneliness and mental health over a period of six to seven years. We found that compassion, and that applies to wisdom total score also, at baseline, as well as increasing compassion over the next six to seven years, improved loneliness and mental well-being at the end of the study period. So there are data suggesting that Compassion and wisdom can be helpful in reducing loneliness. And this may also have biological basis. I showed you the slide earlier on neurobiology of wisdom. We are recently looking at neurobiology of loneliness, and we find that similar areas seem to be involved in both loneliness and wisdom. Of course, the overlap is not 100%, but it's significant overlap in terms of the brain areas involved. But of course, they will go in opposite direction. 
So can wisdom be enhanced? Wisdom is a personality trait, like loneliness, and most traits are only partly inherited, about 50%. That means 50% are determined by environment and behavior. That means they can be modified. Wisdom may increase with aging, may increase with experience, may increase with learning, but as we saw, it can be reduced this specific brain trauma or a specific brain disease. So in other words, wisdom is not fixed. It can change. Possible means of enhancing wisdom include psychosocial behavioral interventions. In future, I expect that there will be pharmacological and other biological interventions. For example, there is quite a bit of work going on right now on what is called RTMS, repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. That is, you can stimulate specific areas of the brain and it has been shown to be useful for depression that doesn't respond to other treatment. So I expect that one day we will be able to do that for enhancing components of wisdom too. And finally, technological, using artificial intelligence. I'll come back to that to the end of my talk. Are there studies that show that wisdom can be enhanced? The answer is resoundingly yes. Alan Lee and our group recently published a paper in JAMA Psychiatry. It was a meta-analysis of 57 randomized controlled trials that tried to enhance specific component of wisdom, such as empathy, compassion, emotional regulation, and spirituality. And these were studies done in people with mental illnesses, like depression or anxiety or PTSD, people with physical illnesses, like cancer, or heart disease, as well as people from the general population. Ha nearly half of the study reported significant increase in the, that component of wisdom with moderate to large effect size. That means in at least some people with the appropriate intervention, we can increase component of wisdom. Let me just give you one example a very interesting study. This was a study done in Spain. It included 176 teenagers. The intervention was called Cyber Program 2.0. And the goal was to prevent bullying and cyberbullying. It involved structured group sessions, 19 one-hour group sessions, which included role play, brainstorming, case study, and group discussion. The researchers found that this cyber program 2.0 increased empathy and reduced the amount of bullying and cyber bullying compared to the control condition. Just think about that, bullying and cyber bullying. There are major problems in today's society, especially with social media for younger people. And if we can reduce that, that will be so helpful for so many people, right? So what can we do in daily life? That's practical wisdom, which means wise decision-making in everyday life. So this means forming a habit of making wise decisions, which will have impact on self and others. So what is a wise decision? Wise decision is something that involves self-reflection, emotional regulation with positivity, empathy and compassion, decisiveness amid uncertainty and spirituality. How can we do that? Let me just give you some example. So let's say our goal is to make ourselves wiser. So that is a New Year's resolution 
making 2021 the year of wisdom. So we become wiser. How can we become wiser? The first step is honest self-reflection. I would say start out by completing the San Diego Wisdom Scale, which will give you scores and individual components of wisdom. Find out on what components you are strong and what components you are weak. So the components you are weak are the ones that need help. But the components you are strong, you can use those as your strength and resources. And then let us say you have problem with emotional regulation. And let us give an example of a common situation, which is road rage. Very common in California, right? And it is understandable sometimes. For example, let's say in the morning, I am rushing to go to my work. I'm a little late, so I want to get as fast as I can. And certainly somebody cuts in front of me. I'm so angry. I'm so upset. I start screaming, cursing. I start tailgating that car. That's not a very helpful reaction because it is not going to change anything positive. It can only do things negatively. I may have an accident, which will create more problems. So how do I handle that? How do I control my emotions when something like that happens? The first thing you do is cognitive reappraisal or rationalization. Make a deliberate effort to reinterpret why that person cut in front of you. Maybe that there is a child on the back seat of that car and suddenly the child became sick. The child threw up or child had a seizure. What would you do if you were driving that car? Wouldn't you rush to go to the emergency room? Wouldn't you cut in front of the other car? When you think along that line, immediately it will reduce your anger. Another thing you can do is distraction. Change the focus. Stop thinking about that somebody cutting in front of you. Think about something that you can enjoy there, like music you like. Increase the volume of the radio to listen to that music. And third is labeling. Recognize that you are angry. You have a reason to be angry. But let us accept that and move on. Self-compassion. That's another important part of wisdom. I often find that people who are very compassionate to others can be overly self-critical. Physicians. I mean, I see some physicians who are absolutely perfectionistic and who can't tolerate a single minor mistake on their part. Priests we know of who are so helpful to others. And yet they can be quite self-critical. And the common situations like interview, talk, day, party, you go and you come out feeling that you really didn't do a good job. You messed it up and it is your fault. So what do you do when that thing happens? The first thing is be kind to yourself. Don't judge yourself harshly. If your friend came and told you that he or she messed up an interview, what would you say? You'll say to that person, that is okay, these things happen. Let's move on. Um, mindfulness. They accept the fact that you are upset, something can go wrong, but then move on. And sense of common humanity. Everybody makes mistakes. So if you made a mistake, you're not alone. So this is kind of the things that are necessary for self-compassion, which makes you feel more relaxed. Of course, self-compassion is different from narcissism. And self-compassion doesn't mean 
that you accept all your faults and don't change. We have to self-correct also. Now, I'm coming to the end of my talk. So I began talking about the modern pan behavioral pandemics, loneliness, suicidality, opioid abuse, and stress. This has been going on for the last couple of decades, but unfortunately they are getting worse. There's a Gallup poll done, and the Gallup, by the way, does these polls every year across the world. And they ask people, this is a randomly selected large representative population, about their level of stress, worry, anger. So the Gallup poll 2019 found that there's a 25 to 40% increase in the average amount of stress, worry, and anger in the U.S. from 2008 to 2018. That's a huge increase. Society is becoming stressed out, worried, angry. We need something. You know, just like for COVID, we will have soon several different vaccines for the behavioral pandemic of loneliness, stress, suicidality, we need a behavioral vaccine. And I submit that the behavioral vaccine is wisdom and it's comfort. So why are we having these kind of societal problems? I think the two main reasons are globalization and incredibly rapid advances in technology. Now, my view that globalization is great and technology is great. No question about that. Globalization has helped make the world smaller so we can connect to people across the world. We can help them. Similarly, technology. Technology is helping us manage so many different things. The telemedicine has been so helpful for help. Again, you know, we are, I'm communicating with you through Zoom. That is technology. So there is no question that globalization and technology are helpful. However, they also have downside. They have changed the social mores. They have increased the level of competition because there is now for any job there are applicants from across the world. So it's hard to get a job. I have to retain a job. Or because there's explosion of information, explosion of knowledge, hard to keep track of that. It's like we have to keep on running just to stay in place. So the world has become more stressed, more anxious, more depressed, more suicidal. And the level of anger is increasing to the extent that there is hatred about other people. There's marked polarization. This is not just disagreement, but as I said, it is hatred that is pretty severe at times, sometimes even violent. To control that, we need a solution at the societal level and individual level too. We need more compassion, more self-reflection, more emotional regulation, more accepting diversity, more spirituality, and that is wisdom. That will be the antidote or vaccine to manage these behavioral pandemics. In our education, we teach hard skills. K through 12, we teach reading, writing, arithmetic. Of course, they are important, they are essential. In professional schools, in medical schools, for example, we teach how to be the best physician, how to be the best diagnostician, the best treatment prescriber. But is that enough? We should teach people how to flourish in life and flourishing 
needs more than your professional skill. It needs empathy, compassion, self-compassion, self-reflection, emotional regulation, all the components of wisdom. So it is important that we teach wisdom at all levels, from K through 12 to professional schools. Where do we go from here? Again, I want to thank you all also, as Daniel said, for your support. The community support is critical for the research that we do at Stein Institute. All of the research that I described wouldn't have been possible with, without your support. And I feel very good about that, that with the continued support, we'll continue doing research on wisdom. And the future of wisdom is bright. The studies that we plan to do in the coming years will include longitudinal studies, including genomics, neurocircuitry using functional brain imaging, animal studies. Do animals have wisdom? Actually, those people who have pets, dogs, especially dogs, uh, cats and others also, will agree horses, elephants, and so on. Animals do display components of wisdom. So that's actually an important area of study. Biological effects of behavioral intervention. I talked about how meditation and mindfulness can affect brain. But I also think about biological means of enhancing wisdom. As I said, there are areas involved in wisdom. Can we stimulate them and increase wisdom? And finally, artificial intelligence. We use AI in everyday life. We need to change that to artificial wisdom. The machines are very smart. But today the machines don't make compassionate decisions. They make pragmatic decisions, but not compassionate decisions. They don't accept diversity as well as they should. So that is artificial wisdom. That doesn't mean that the machines will have emotions, but the robots of future will help their human users be more compassionate. And this is my last slide. So if we use wisdom and at all levels of the society and educated people, train people in use of wisdom, will transform today's lonely, distressed, and polarized world into happier, healthier, and wiser society. And we will move from 2020, which was arguably the worst year in memory, to 2021, which could be a wiser year and increasingly more happy, more healthy, and more wise society as a whole. Thank you for your attention, and I will be happy to take your question. Thank you. Thank you so much for that fascinating talk. Even though I do this research with you, I still learn something every time I hear that talk. So thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to such a wonderful audience. Yes, we have a lot of people here with us tonight, Dr. Justine. As you can imagine, people have a lot of questions. In no particular order, first question. Uh, does regular exercise help you age better? Any recommendations? The answer is resoundingly yes. Physical exercise has been consistently found to be useful for successful aging. It is actually useful at any age. It helps improve not only physical health, but also mental health and cognitive function. Numerous studies have shown that people who are active physically, they have less stress, 
their brain functioning is better even brain structure improves as a result of physical exercise there are some specific recommendations by the cdc for how much exercise one can have so typically for adults they recommend five times a week of moderately severe exercise or three days of vigorous exercise in a week but for yourself you should definitely check with your own physician to find out what type of exercise and what intensity of exercise would be most useful to you but almost always increase in physical activity is helpful fantastic um this one's on loneliness dr jesty how do you think loneliness is impacted in today's world of zoom calls and social media that's a great question um as daniel mentioned this is actually the first time we have this public lecture on zoom and it really has its pluses in the sense we had so many people who could join they didn't have to travel here physically on the other hand we are not meeting in person you lose something in that we used to enjoy so seeing you all and then addressing the questions really in actual life but that is not possible now social distancing is critical for stemming the spread of the virus and i think it will continue for some time till the vaccines are widely used and there is herd immunity development so that social distancing does increase loneliness there is no question about that but one thing i want to stress is what is recommended is physical distancing not social distancing we can still keep in contact with one another without coming into physical contact using things like um facetime for example or just like we are doing now with zoom where we can see one another one another again it's not the same as seeing in person however there is this social connection that we need to keep so there is clearly increase in loneliness which means that we need to find ways in which we can communicate with each other and keep our social engagement active okay fantastic thank you there's so many great questions coming in right now dr jesty so this one is uh is interesting how does chronic pain impact wisdom it makes me angry and impatient i understand that's sure i mean i think in uh, older age most people do have chronic pain of one kind or another most of the time and we don't necessarily had too much control over that it can be because of back problems headache and so many other things can cause pain and chronic pain what we have to do is think logically so we need to find out what is causing the pain go to the physician see if the physician has any recommendations for any medications any exercises physical rehab so on and so forth so whatever is needed we need to do those things the thing over which we have control is how we react to that emotionally so when there is pain part of the pain is emotional it's feeling of anxiety distress sometimes even depression sadness so to the extent possible we want to be able to control that we can say that you know i have had pain in my life from time to time eventually it went away and i am fine so 
So this pain will also go away. So let me not get too panicky, but try to control the emotional response to the pain to the extent that I can. Does compassion and wisdom change with cognitive decline? So when we talk about cognition, our intelligence for that matter, as I mentioned in my slide, intelligence and wisdom are not same. To be wise, you have to have a certain level of cognition, certain level of intelligence, no question about that. But beyond that, it doesn't make a difference, right? In old age, especially old, old age, which could be 85, 90, the cognitive decline gets worse. That's the age at which the risk of Alzheimer's disease, for example, is at the highest level. And when the cognition starts declining, it has impact actually on most of the brain. So there is loss of neurons, synapses, then the neuroplasticity is no longer possible. So at that stage, the wisdom will likely decline. However, that happens much later in life. So until that age, we still have the ability to help our brain grow, kind of, with developing new neurons, synapses, with physical, cognitive, and social activity. But when the cognitive decline exceeds a certain level, when the brain shrinkage exceeds a certain level, then clearly it will downsize wisdom and compassion. Okay. And here's a question on grief, Dr. Jesty. When we age, we experience an increased number of losses, our health and loved ones, both. How is it that our general feelings of well-being tend to increase as we age, but our grief becomes more prevalent due to losses? There is no question that aging is associated with losses. Just as you said, there's loss of physical health, um, loss of family members, um, friends, uh, loss of job, financial losses, all of those losses multiply. On the other hand, what changes is how we respond to those stresses. I showed you the slide about how mental health changes from age 20 to 90 plus, right? And 20s is actually the period of the greatest level of stress, anxiety, depression, that's the age when suicides are unfortunately becoming more common. As we age, the stress doesn't go down. The stress may even increase, but the way we respond to stress goes down partly because of our experience. You know, we have gone through stresses in the past and we have survived. So why will we not survive this one? But there is also biological explanation for why we respond less to losses in later life than when we are young. In the slide that I showed you about uh, the regions of the brain that are involved in uh, wisdom, I mentioned amygdala. So amygdala is the part of the brain that is kind of a center of emotional expression and feeling emotion. And amygdala responds to both positive stimuli and negative stimuli. As we get old, the amygdala becomes less responsive to stressful, negative, hurtful stimuli. It still responds well to positive stimuli, just as in a younger person, but it responds less to negative stimuli compared to a young person. 
So although we have losses and we have those other negative events that cause stress, the brain responds less actively in old age than in the younger age. So in other words, the nature wants us to cope with these stresses because the nature knows that as with age, the physical and other stresses are going to increase. So it wants to help us by reducing our responsiveness. Okay, fantastic. So the next question, how might one enact artificial wisdom? And that, that's a great question. This is something we have been studying for some time. Uh, as Daniel mentioned, we have a, a collaboration with IBM uh, focused on artificial intelligence for healthy aging, specifically. Artificial intelligence, and we use in everyday life today. In a way, the Zoom is also uh, an example of AI. Artificial intelligence means very smart machines. They can do calculations thousand times faster than any human can. And they will continue getting smarter. But for our thriving, we just don't need intelligence. We don't just need smartness. We need empathy, compassion, self-reflection, self-correction. So artificial wisdom, as we see it, is something that we will have in near future where the machines will be able to self-correct. They won't have emotions, but they can help their human users to control their emotions. And the machines can help their human users make compassionate decisions. So we need to teach our machines. And I believe that that will be possible in the next couple of decades, probably. What is needed is a collaboration between engineers and computer scientists with mental health experts, ethicists, philosophers, and others. Okay, great. This next one is a comment with a question. Uh, this person says, wow, this was fabulous. I am totally cheered up. Um, where is the best place to start? Mindful meditation, yoga. Thank you so much. This research is fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate that. So in a way, where you start is self-reflection, trying to find out what components of wisdom I want to find out what components of wisdom am I weak in and what components of wisdom I'm strong in. One way to do that is this wisdom scale that we have developed, San Diego Wisdom Scale or SDY. So as Daniel mentioned, so go to aging.ucsd.edu and look, search for wisdom scale. It will take you to the SDYs. There are 28 statements and answer each of those statements as honestly, as truthfully as you can. You will get a score for each of the components of wisdom and total score. So find out what, what are your strengths and what are your limitations. Again, everybody has strength and everybody has limitations. So if I find, for example, that I have stronger self-reflection but weaker or lower scores on empathy and compassion, then that means I need some compassion training. And then I can look at what are the different things that one can do. So one of the things we have published in our research and also in our book is wiser, is what do you do for different components of wisdom? What are the ways in which we can increase each of those? And definitely meditation, mindfulness are among the strategies that one can use. Fantastic. Okay. Um, 
The next question. Every time we are helpful, we get a dose of oxytocin and dopamine. Could you talk a little bit about this? So dopamine is present in the area called striatum, limbic striatum. And increase in dopamine actually makes us more stimulated, active. We are physically active, emotionally happy. And increasing that shot of dopamine is good in some way. But also it is bad in some ways, in the sense it, that may be associated with addiction. When we get addicted, then we use some substance and dopamine goes up. But then after that, we get used to it. So we need to get more of the substance to increase dopamine. What happens with aging is our dopamine level goes down. When dopamine level goes down, that actually improves our emotional regulation. So one of the reasons, again, why we respond less to stressful stimuli is because the dopamine has gone down. So to that extent, decreasing dopamine is helpful. So increasing oxytocin is helpful. Decreasing dopamine is helpful. Okay, great. Um, how can we increase the sharing of the positive results of your aging studies and others, as well as the 50 plus population to the media, manufacturers and so on to decrease the cultural negative perspectives of ageism, clear away ageism and thereby fully understand the positive aspects of aging. So how can we get our, our research results out to a larger audience so that they can work along with ageism? Okay, that's a great question, and that's exactly what we are trying to do, we have been doing at Center of Healthy Aging. You know, when we started our center a number of years ago uh, with the Spine Institute, one of the questions was, what kind of research we do on aging? And at that time, we decided that we are not going to study diseases of aging. They are important, and other people should study them. But we wanted something unique. We wanted to talk about and do research on the things that get better with aging. There are things that improve with aging. Unfortunately, in the modern society, there is so much ageism. Our whole focus of the society is on health, youth, and beauty. And those are the things that go down with aging. On the other hand, there are things that improve with aging. We saw that increase in various components of wisdom. We become more contented. We get less stressed out compared to what we were in our 20s. We can transmit our wisdom. We increase our compassion, empathy, self-reflection, emotional regulation. So these are the things that improve with aging and older people can help younger ones become wiser. So we need older people to help the younger generation. So this is something we need to, again, propagate and convince our leaders, including politicians, who allocate money for the different purposes that we should spend money on how to facilitate healthy aging. And this is also something ARP has been working on, reducing the ageism and helping older people become wiser and healthier. That actually ties in nicely to our next question, Dr. Jesty. Are there any curriculums available to teach wisdom? Uh, there are actually... No formal curricula as such. However, what is happening is there are courses on specific aspects. For example, at UCSD School of Medicine, um, there is development of compassion courses. This will be right now for the students, but eventually I think they will broaden to general population. Um, so again, these are the 
the type of talks that I give and other people give also on compassion, empathy, the books that are out there. I think it is important to read those, but this is something everybody should participate in. And as a community, if you can tell the media, tell the uh, politicians and the decision makers that there is such a thing as wisdom of aging and we need to help them, that will have greater impact, I think, on the health in general. Fantastic. Now we're nearing the end of our time, so we just have a few more minutes left for questions. Uh, n- last, uh, Next question. Any thoughts about compassion fatigue? Uh, especially our healthcare workers that are going through, uh, you know, frontline issues during the pandemic? Okay, that's an excellent question. Compassion fatigue is real. And I often see that among physicians, uh, especially during the COVID, and not just physicians, actually it is physicians, nurses, social workers, uh, um, everybody who was on the front line, they had to face so much. Um, I'm a psychiatrist. And in psychiatry, sometimes, you know, you see depressed patients who are suicidal. And after treating a few patients in a day, sometimes you are so exhausted mentally. So compassion fatigue is real. So the way to handle it is having some self-compassion. I often find that people who are compassionate to others are often harsh on themselves. You see that in physicians, you see that in priests, for example chaplain, uh, so kind to others, and that doesn't help. So you must be self-forgiving. Everybody makes mistakes. You make mistakes, and that's okay. It is important to avoid that compassion fatigue. Just my favorite example is in the airplane, you know, the security video. They say when the air pressure drops, the mask will uh, fall. Put on your mask first before helping others. So take care of yourself first before helping others. That's important. Fantastic. And and this will be our last question, Dr. Justy. Is it better to seek wisdom as the goal rather than happiness? And why? Again, terrific question. Great question. The goal of wisdom is actually to increase happiness. However, happiness is a state. The problem with happiness is it will vary. You know, today I will be very happy, but tomorrow I may be very depressed. Happiness is fluctuating. Wisdom does not fluctuate. So what happens with wisdom is there is emotional regulation. So even wise people do become happy and they do become sad, but the range of emotions is narrow. So you don't go from being ecstatic to being suicidal. You try to control the range of emotion. That's why focusing on happiness is not useful because inevitably that will change. Focusing on wisdom will actually help you stay contented and happier over a much longer period. Fantastic. And with that, Dr. Jesty, I would like to sincerely thank you for spending your night with us tonight and for sharing your research and your wisdom with all of us. Uh, We appreciate each and every one of you that spent your night with us tonight as well. We miss seeing all of you and we cannot wait until the opportunity presents itself for us to do public lectures on campus again. But until then, we appreciate all of you pivoting and joining us tonight and continuing to support the innovative research that we're doing at the Center for Healthy Aging. And if you'd like to continue to support our work, you can find a way to donate at aging.ucsd.edu. So with that, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Jesty, for your time tonight. Thank you. Uh, And I also want 
to thank the San Diego community and people elsewhere who have been so helpful. The reason we do research is for helping others. And I'm just thrilled and honored that you're all here and wish everybody happy holidays and a wise 2021. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.